But we are so glad to be in God's house today. And I want to begin with a statement I think all of us would agree with. Communication is an art form that few, if any, ever really understand to its fullest extent. Uh, stories are all over the place about how men and women do not communicate well. My wife would have been married. Do you know how long we've been married, honey? She's trying to figure it out. 46 plus years. And we're still working on understand what the other one is saying. But it happens between husband and wives. It happens between parents and children, parents and grandchildren. It happens uh, all the time between every age group. I have seen some uh, instances over the years uh, that just made me chuckle and sometimes wince. I'll never forget one time I was on a mission trip. Took a group of people. Uh, we had gone on some mission trips to a jungle area in Ecuador. And I'm talking jungle, jungle stuff. And there was a group of people called the Chachi people. An unreached people group. Never heard the gospel. We got to share the gospel. We took in medical teams, did medical work, shared the gospel. It was a glorious experience. There are 20-some Chachi villages. And we were able, with missionaries and others, to help plant churches in four of those 20-some villages. But they began to spread the gospel. And before you know it, there were 17 churches in 17 villages. So it was working. So one of our trips, subsequent trips, we brought all the church leaders together and did training for them. Spent a whole week training these uh, church leaders in how to do church, about theology, uh, Christian growth, you name it. It was a wonderful experience. But we had a bunch of people with us. And I warned our people. And I said, now listen, you got to be careful when you're teaching because communication's difficult anyway. But when you're going from one language, we had to speak in English, and we had a translator in Spanish, and then another person translated into Chapalachi, which is the language of the Chachi people. So we had three different languages going on. I said, listen, you got to be careful. Just be simple. And for one thing, I'm just going to tell you, because I've been in so many cultural situations, do not try to use American illustrations. They just don't communicate. They, it doesn't work. Don't do it. So sure enough, one of my best friends ignored everything I said. And he starts, he starts teaching and he starts telling this illustration that you probably have heard about a Native American who had come to Christ. And someone was asking this Native American about his spiritual struggles. And he said, well, there's two dogs inside of me, a white one and a black one. And they're always fighting for, for prominence in my heart. Well, which, you know the story, well, which one of them is winning? Well, the one I feed the most. Well, he tries to tell this story. It gets translated into Spanish. It gets translated into Chapalachi. And the men just sat there with the most puzzled look. They, they just couldn't understand what's this white man saying. He's crazy. Missionary friend of mine said, a year later, said, Frank, I went back into those villages. You're not going to believe it. I said, what? I never called him by his name. I just called him Jungle Missionary. He called me Jungle Preacher. So I said, what, Jungle Preacher, a missionary? What, what happened? He said, there was not a single black dog in, the, in, in the, any of the villages. They went back and killed every one of them. 
I said, what? He said, nope, killed every one of them. Don't use those. How about this is a little nicer. So in my last place of ministry here, when I was there back yonder days, we were going on a mission trip. And so everybody had to write out their testimony. And again, I cautioned them to be careful because some things just don't translate well into other languages. And so this one deacon didn't listen real well. He said, I've got this fancy-smancy new computer program. It translates everything I say into Spanish. Okay. So this wonderful deacon, he, he has this beautiful testimony. His last phrase in it is, and I'm going to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. Well, that sounds innocent enough, doesn't it? The Spanish translation came out, I'm going to follow Jesus, and he's going to make me sleep good for the rest of my life, for the remainder of my life. Poor Billy Graham once was doing a crusade in Moscow, Russia, and he has some flyers printed. And in the flyer, in English, it used the scripture, the spirit is, no, no, the the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. Something like that. The body is weak, but the spirit is strong. That's it. The body is weak, but the spirit is strong. Well, by the time it came out in Russian, it said, the body is weak was translated, he can't stand up, but the spirit is strong came out, but he's got good vodka. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's not what we meant to communicate. Well, let me just tell you, Jesus had come back with me stay with me some of you don't even know what vodka is i've heard about it jesus struggled with communication too he would share things and not always did it get understood the way he meant it but in this instance we're going to read about today we're going to see him speak to his disciples and try to communicate in a powerful way I think he did, but it took a while. Look with me, please, to John chapter 6. As you know, I've been preaching through the gospel of John, every verse. It's going to take us a while to finish, but today we come to John 6, beginning with verse 1. And we're going to see Jesus really dealing with uh, two different situations in which he tried to communicate something powerfully. And so verses, uh, chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Look there with me, please. It says, after these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee. Now, go ahead and put a picture up for me, if you would, honey. This, this is a picture. It's not a good one. Um, in fact, if you want to see it better, you have to turn around and look at the screen behind you. But it's the Sea of Galilee. It's the Sea of Galilee. I took this picture, as you can see, in 2011. Dale was with me there. and That's just a picture of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful freshwater lake in north, northern Israel, eight and a half miles wide, 11 and a half miles long, freshwater, 600 and a few feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake in the world. Anyway, it's surrounded by hills and mountains. They would call the mountains their beautiful hills all around it. And so the Bible says, after these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is called the Sea of Tiberias. That's what the Romans called it. 
Then a great multitude followed him because he saw, they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lift up, lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that everyone would have just maybe a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves, two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wished or wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up. Fill twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. And then those men, when they had seen the sign that God did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come to the world. And then it switches. Look at verse 15. Now therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him, how? By force to make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat, went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. And then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. They were afraid but they said to, he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat. Immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Well, we look back to this text. It begins with that feeding of the 5,000. A miracle that is so powerful that it is recorded in all four Gospels. Often a miracle is recorded in one, two, or three. Rarely is it mentioned in all four. But in this instance, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all contain the story of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, story of how God took care of people. Well, we know he was trying to get away to rest. And he was trying to get away with his disciples. But he sees this multitude of people coming to him. And he decides we not to minister. We've got to minister to these people. And four solutions came up. Not only in the Gospel of John, but also in the other Gospels. Four solutions. And the first thing, uh, as we see that he fed the multitude, how did they consider feeding the multitude? Well, first, in the book of Mark, we see the disciples decided, well, tell them to go away. Uh, they suggested in Mark 6, well, just tell them to go away and get food for themselves. 
Take care of yourself, boy. You know, go do. Go, we, we don't have enough for you. Go take care of yourself. Get rid of the problem. Well, first of all, Jesus said in Mark, no, they can't do that. They would faint on the way. They're already hungry. It's too late in the day. No, you cannot send them away and just get rid of the problem. Well, the second solution was to raise enough money to buy food for them. Well, so he, he approaches this problem and asked Philip. And Philip counted the cost and said, well, my goodness, we, we don't have enough money for that. It would take 200 days of wages to feed this number of people. Maybe Philip was saying, well, money's the answer to everything. Well, I will tell you, money does answer a few questions, but it does not answer the ultimate questions of life. Money's not the answer to everything. Well, the third option in feeding the multitude was someone found a little boy who had a small lunch. Well, who was it? It was Andrew. Now, Andrew is not a person of prominence in Scripture. He doesn't really hold a great, he doesn't write and say great things. But every time you see Andrew in the Bible, guess what he was doing? He was bringing somebody to Christ. I love the story of what Andrew was like. He may not have been a profound theologian or writer, but he brought people to Jesus. And in this instance, he's bringing a little boy. A little boy who may have already heard We've got a need here, and this little boy comes forward. I've got some bread and some fish that my mama gave me before I left the house. Now, first of all, why is a little boy in that crowd? Well, he has a spiritual hunger just like everybody else. God bless little boys and little girls who have a spiritual hunger. So he brings his lunch to Jesus. And, and of course, Andrew knows, well, there's not much this little lunch can do, but it's something to start with. We'll come back to that in a moment. The fourth solution to feed the people came from Christ. He takes the little boy's lunch, he blessed it, he broke it, and then he passed it out. And a miracle occurred. Now a lot of people have talked about this miracle over the years. Some say, well, the miracle occurred as the disciples were handing it out. Well, the miracle occurred in the hands of Jesus, not in the hands of the disciples. He multiplied the food they had the joyful privilege of just passing it out. Let me tell you, I didn't write the precious, inerrant Word of God. I'm just the one who gets to pass it out. And this beautiful instance here is of Jesus showing what can happen when someone gives what they have unto the Lord and how the Lord can bless it and use it despite ourselves. He multiplies the food and the practical lesson is clear. Whenever there is a need, give it to the Lord and then watch what he can do with it. Many of you have already come up to me in my few months here and you've told me of what God has done in your life when you have given it all to him. You've showed me, told me and shown me miracle after miracle that God has performed as you have given to him and he has brought to you great blessings. Oh, my friends, now the liberals say, oh, there's no real miracle here. What happened was this little boy's act of generosity brought out the spirit of generosity of everybody else and they had food with them. It was just hidden. You know, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. First of all, Jesus would have known if they had the food. Second, even the people themselves declared that this was a miracle. 
This was not a miracle of generosity. This was a miracle of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a miracle of the Lord Jesus being able to take what a little boy had and make it able to feed thousands of people. It's significant also, my friends, that John twice mentioned the fact that Jesus gave thanks to the Lord. Not once, but twice he mentioned that he gave thanks unto the Lord. He reminded the hungry people that all good things come from God. And that's a lesson we need to learn today, isn't it? We need to give thanks of what he has given us. He reminded people that God's the source and we need to remind ourselves in our self-sufficiency. God's the source. You think you're the one that's done what you've done? No. God owns it all. He does it all. You're just the steward of what God has done. This little boy in this beautiful story teaches us so much. Jesus fed the multitude. So no, I reject the liberals' belief in how it happened. I believe it was a true miracle where Jesus took a little amount of food and multiplied it to feed the masses. I've seen God do the same thing in my own life. I've seen him take a little and make much out of it. And you have too. But the second thing that happened was Jesus left the multitude. Jesus left the multitude. Now look at verses 15 through 21. And you're going to say, well, this just doesn't connect. Oh, yes, it does. Now what happened in verse 15? There is a change in the crowd. Jesus communicated to them and fed them. Now people like to be fed. You know, we tease about Baptists and, you know, how Baptists love to eat. We tease about that. You ought to go into another denomination sometime. They say the same things we do. They all talk about food, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But people like to be fed. Well, of course they do. And he feeds the multitude, but he does it in such a way. They see the power of God on this man. They see that Jesus is different. And so they think, well, if he can do that, we want him to be our king. And it says in verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force, To make him king, he decided, I've got to defuse this situation immediately. Jesus did not come to be king of Israel. He became to be king of your heart. He did not come to be an earthly king. He came to be the king of our minds and our spirits. He became a king of life. And so he begins to defuse the situation. Now, one writer said, you know, the disciples probably weren't happy with him because they wished he could have been king. Because one one writer said, you know, Peter could have become the prime minister. And Judas could have become the treasurer. And I thought more about it. John could have become the secretary of state. I mean, they all could have had a big position in this new administration. But Jesus knew he did not come to be an earthly king. And so he immediately begins to diffuse the situation by changing. And so the disciples get in the boat. And Jesus was not with them at the time. Now, again, you got to ask your question. Wait a minute. Now, Jesus, you've just fed the 5,000. Your popularity is at an all-time high. And you just leave the people. And you put your disciples in a boat knowing there's going to be a storm coming. Does that look kind to you? I'm going to tell you Jesus was in the process of rescuing his disciples yet again. Yes, he knew that a storm was coming. 
Yes, he knew where he was sending his friends. But you see, he was rescuing them from greater danger. The greater danger of being swept into this fanatical movement that the crowd was already working itself up into to make Jesus an earthly king. He wanted to save his disciples from that and teach them an even greater lesson. The disciples had experienced great joy in seeing what Jesus did. They had attested like everyone else. This is a prophet who has come to this world. They had already seen that. But he wanted them to face a storm and experience his power within the storm. Any of you ever been through a storm in your life? Well, of course you have. I know most all of you personally, and I know you've gone through storms in your life. I have as well. But he wanted to teach his disciples that he was present even in the midst of the storm. And that's a lesson all of us need to learn at some point in our life or another. That he is present even in the midst of the storm. You see, the feeding of the 5,000 was a great lesson. But the storm was the examination after the lesson. And he wanted to see how these boys going to do as I examine their faith. Oh, my friend, storms come in every life. Storms are going to come in every life. But what is our Lord Jesus doing now? He is interceding on behalf of you and me. Remember our statement we've been learning together? Our Lord Jesus is the prophetically predicted, virgin-born, pure-living, vicarious-dying, gloriously resurrected, bodily resurrected, gloriously ascended, he is the soon-to-return, presently interceding Son of God. And He is interceding for you and me right now to say, I'm going to help you in the midst of the storm. I'm going to help guide you through the storm that you're going through even now. Well, our Lord's dealing with the multitude and feeding, and in leading His disciples, portrays great truths to us for what happened. It says, now we even came, the disciples went into the sea. They got in the boat, verse 17, went over the sea toward Capernaum, which is a fascinating place to visit. It was already dark, and the storm comes up, and they've rowed about three or four miles. What do they see? Jesus walking on the water. Yet another miracle. It scared them to death. We see that in another gospel. It would you too. But as soon as he gets in the boat, everything's okay. I'm just asking you to let Jesus get into the boat of your life too. Let him teach you that he's with you. Let him teach you that you are not alone. Let him teach you that you can trust him. That's what he wants. He wants to teach you that he can take a little boy's gifts and he can make it special. But he's wanting to teach us most of all that... The real point of his ministry is a personal one, to save, to redeem, and to comfort. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? I believe he's still the one that can change a few barley loaves and a few fish into enough for everyone. I believe he is still the one that can give us a calm place in the midst of a storm. And if you don't believe that, you really don't need to ever come back to church ever again, here or anywhere else. But he's the one you can trust. He's the one you can trust. And his word is precious and pure and without error. And you can trust it. So our Lord Jesus teaches us many lessons here today. 
And if there's one verse, verse that I would ask you to memorize, and sometimes I ask you to memorize verses out of Sunday, it would be verse 20. Just simply watch the word. What does it say? But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. Be not afraid. And when the next storm comes up in your life or in your job or in your family, you say, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus is speaking to you that word of comfort and direction. It is I. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've got this. You see, no storm ever takes Jesus by surprise. He doesn't wake up and say, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was going to happen. No. He's not surprised by the storm you're going through. But he gets in the boat with you. And immediately they were at the place where they needed to be in the first place. He cares, he provides, he comforts. Do you believe that? I do. Pray with me. Father God, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your precious word. And Lord, may we today trust you. Trust you. That you are the living hope that we sang about. You are the comfort, the provider that we've just read about. So Lord, right now, would you speak to us? Would you deal with us right where we are, Lord? I pray, God, that every person here would come to understand your salvation today. Every man, woman, boy, and girl in this place would say yes to you to be saved. But those that are saved... This would be a moment of new and renewed trust that you are who you said you are and you're still in the midst and the ministry of providing like you did then. God, we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name.